The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Father, you are gracious, you are good, you are great, you are glorious, and we thank you for your presence here today. Uh, We thank you for the the, uh, ability and the opportunity to to sing to you and to worship and to remind ourself even uh, that Jesus, you're the point of all creation and that God, you're the only one who's good, right, and perfect. Um, It's good for my soul to to remember that on a Sunday morning, that life isn't about me and my accomplishments and my desires for stuff and all the things that I try to fill my life with on a daily basis. That's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I pray that we would listen intently today, that you would anoint my mind, you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, Father God, that it would be all of you and none of me, that this morning we would hear from the Holy Scripture, that we would um, hear from God, that we wouldn't just hear a fairy tale or, or an ancient myth, but God, we would be ministered to by the word of God. And it's going to be a difficult word. It's going to be a heavy Word, But I pray that you would be good in the midst of it, that you would communicate what you want to communicate to us. And Father, you would be glorified and we would receive a lot of joy today. In Jesus' name, everybody said. All right. In 2004, if you remember, the third largest earthquake ever recorded in the, uh, occurred in the Indian Ocean. The resulting tsunami created waves that were 98 feet tall and took the lives of over 230,000 people in 14 different countries. 230,000 souls met their creator that day. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded history. 230,000. Can we get our head around that? It's about two-thirds of the Quad Cities wiped out in one day. Devastating events such as this caused many people to ask, and it was common to hear on news, secular news reports. It was common to hear all across the world on those days. How could God allow this to happen? If God is good, maybe he's not strong enough to save. Or if God is strong enough, maybe he's just not good. Today we're going to get an upfront look at God's sovereignty over his creation. That means nothing happens without his permission. We're going to be in the middle. Right now we're in the middle of the story of Noah's Ark. Many of you have heard this. Everybody's probably heard some version of the story of Noah's Ark. Last week we prefaced it. Last week we really worked, worked through just what was going up up until the flood. Today we're going to really talk about the flood. I'm sure you're aware of the story at least from a 30,000 foot view. But today, the camera is going to zoom in, and we're going to get really personal. Today, we're going to get an upfront look at God's sovereignty over his entire creation. It's a dark and tragic story. I sit down at my son's bed at bedtime, and we've read the story many, many times, and it's always a little awkward, isn't it? You read the story of Noah's Ark, and then Javin goes, But Daddy, what happened to everybody else? Oh, they drowned, son. Good night. Enjoy Jesus. <laughs> right? I wonder why my kids are scared at storms at bedtime. <laughs> right? It's a little awkward. 
But we just say, we just tell our kids like this is good news. We just teach our kids the story of Noah's Ark and we just march on like no big deal. Yep, one family, eight people got saved and everybody else swam for it. It's a tough story to hear. But we discovered last week, and I think a lot of people, I heard a ton last week of feedback of people saying, I never heard the story of Noah's Ark that way before. I've never seen it and with those eyes before. And that's because many of us have never been taught the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of Jesus throughout all of scripture. So we think the Old Testament's a bunch of stories and the New Testament's the good news about Jesus. No, the entire story, the entire from Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. And God didn't change his plans with Jesus. God fulfilled his plans with Jesus. So we saw last week um, that the story of Noah is not the story of God looking down and seeing some super righteous and holy man and then choosing to save him because he was the one guy that was actually hitting home runs spiritually. God wasn't in heaven like, oh, my, nobody else is doing anything good. Oh, this one guy, Noah, he's the only guy. He's on my team. I'm going to go down and save Noah. Noah was no different. He was a broke sinner just like the rest of mankind. But God showed Noah grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Not because of anything he had ever done or anything he would ever do. Noah found grace. Now, last week we saw that that Hebrew word for favor is the first time grace is ever used in the scripture. And it's grace is God's one-way preferential treatment. God's one-way preferential treatment. So today we're going to study an incredibly dark story, the story of God showing one family, say one family, grace in the midst of displaying his justice to the rest of mankind. But that's not fair. That's right. It's grace. God's one way, unfair, preferential treatment. If God was only fair, they all would have drowned. Noah and his family included. That's what they deserved for rebelling against God. That's what they deserved for building their life on something other than God, from worshiping something other than God. So Noah and his family got grace. But here's the thing. Grace is more than just, ah, no big deal, Noah. Ah, I'll look past it. Your sin... Not a big deal. Grace is far more than just overlooking. We saw last week, one of the miraculous things about receiving grace is that it makes a person righteous. It's like a seed planted in the soul of man that grows up and makes a person righteous. That's another way of saying that grace had its work in Noah and produced, produced, produced an obedience to God. Grace produces obedience to God. I hope you hear that. Because the first time we ever hear about grace, one of the first responses is, sweet, nothing I do matters. I can go live my life however I want and just ignore God. And God will just look at me and he has to give me grace. Absolutely not. One of the signs of a heart that's been changed by grace is that heart begins to produce obedience to God. So Noah was a normal dude sinning and breaking commandments just like everyone else, but God chooses in his sovereign will to give him grace and to come down and to walk with him and to talk with him. And what does Noah say? 
Or what does God say to Noah? My bad. God said to Noah, I want you to build me a zoo boat. God gave him the dimensions. 1.4 million cubic feet. uh, Big enough to to fit 55 modern day rail cars inside it. Noah was a bivocational. He was bivocational. He was, for the next 120 years, he worked at building this boat and preaching the gospel. Noah was telling his friends, his neighbors, his family, God is good, but we've turned from him, but he's gracious to forgive us. He gives us time to repent, but judgment is coming. It's the gospel. Noah swings a hammer for 120 years and nobody but his family listened. Nobody but his family listened. Nobody else repents. Nobody else experiences life change. Nothing doing. Look, I want you to see something here that I think is really important for you to understand about the Christian life. I don't think you're going to hear it very often. I don't think you're going to pick up a book at the Christian bookstore and read about this. I don't think you're going to hear it on Christian TV or Christian radio, but I want you to hear it because it's all through Scripture. God does not promise you an easy life. He doesn't promise you comfort and success in all your endeavors. We like to think that if we love God and we try our best to obey Him, everything will work out the way we want it to, and He is obliged to make us successful. Because we want this to be true so bad. It's like that kid who wants to, I'm going to go pro. I'm going to be a pro football player. I'm going to be a pro baseball I want it so bad. Everybody's like, dude, you're second string, bro. You're on the J, dude, it ain't happening. But he just wants it to be true so bad. He can't hear nobody else. It's the way we are with prosperity and success. We want it to be true so bad. Those who moderately know their Bible will search out scriptures that seem to back this up. God wants to bless us. God wants to make us the head and not the tail. God is for us. If God is for us, who could be against us? Scriptures that seem to promise them victory, comfort, and prosperity in this life. And they will proudly declare, this is what God wants to do for me. See, God blessed blessed, uh, David like this. God's going to bless me like this. But God is sovereign. He's totally free. And He only does the things that pleases Him. He raises one up and He pulls another down. Now listen, this... The book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books. It's an amazing book. Um, And in Hebrews chapter 11, it's often called the Hall of Faith. It's a who's who of all the faith stars in the Bible. And I want us to go there this morning because I wanted to see something. As we've progressed through Genesis, we've heard about a few dudes. We've met a guy named Adam. We met a guy named Abel. We met a guy named Enoch. We met a guy named Noah. And I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 11 with me this morning. It's not going to be on the screen because I didn't give the guys the scripture. So don't freak out, boys, boys and girls. Hebrews chapter 11. When you're there, say there. Okay. Hall of Faith, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Commendation means they were approved. It means they were deemed righteous. It means they got what they were looking for, right? Why did they get what they were looking for? By faith. Now I want you to look at this. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Look at this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Gifts. And therefore, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he had was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Yes, God rewards those who seek, those, those who want to be near to God. God rewards them. Yes, I've been wanting that Cadillac all my life. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the sake of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I want you to see that this morning. Abel, Enoch, Noah, each was deemed righteous by God, and re- but, listen, but received something totally different in their life circumstances from the hand of God. Do we see this? Abel, Enoch, Noah, all walked with God. Each one looked, their life looked completely different. One murdered Abel, murdered by his brother. Enoch, one taken by God at 365 years. Noah, one experienced immense difficulty, but was saved in the midst of great divine judgment. Do you see this? The common denominator was they all walked with God. That is what God promises to those whom he declares to be righteous. The walk. I will walk with you. I will be near to you. The surroundings and the circumstances will vary, but God's gracious presence will not. The reward of grace and faith is the walk. His nearness is the reward of the gift of faith. Do you hear that? I hope you hear that this morning. God does not promise to say yes to all your prayers. God God does not promise to give you that thing that you really, really want. God promises to be near to you. Christians, do you hear that? That is the goal of the Christian life, to walk in an intimate, near relationship with God. Not to have our circumstances go the way we want them to go. And in this story today, in Genesis, we're going to see that Noah has been dealt a really tough hand here. If I was Noah, I'd be asking God, come on, God, I want the Enoch plan. Come on, just beam me up here. Enoch walked with you and you zapped him up to heaven to be with you. I'm walking with you and you've given me this tough, really tough, incredibly tough job to do. And God whispers down, would you rather have the Abel plan? What do we do with the hand that we've been dealt? I'm good. Noah, 
Noah says, Noah accepts the role that God has given him to play. Noah accepts it by grace and by faith. And Noah obeys God. Now listen, don't think Noah is some, you know, superstar because he did this. The only reason Noah accepted it is because God gave Noah the grace to do it. Throughout Genesis and the entire Bible, you're going to see this pattern. People who have been given grace respond with faith-filled obedience. People who have been given grace respond with faith-filled obedience. They're not perfect. Every single one of them falls and sins, but they repent and they obey God by faith. Can I ask you this morning, how do you respond when God speaks to you through his word? How do you respond when God speaks to you through a sermon, through a friend, through your missional community, or in your heart? Do you respond with faith and obedience? Or do you make excuses? I'm going to tell you this morning, a believer is someone who responds to God with faith and obedience. And that is rarely, if ever, easy. I doubt that anybody in here has, you know, this week you, you had your quiet time with Jesus and Jesus said, hey, I want you to go build a boat in your front yard. Right? But he asks us week in and week out, day in and day out, to do very difficult things. He asks us to give of our finances. For the believer, he says, start at 10%. 10% of your finances, I want you to give back to me. We say, oh, but I can't because I got retirement, and I got this, and I got the kids, and I got, I got you know, soccer practice, and I got all... It's difficult. It's difficult to obey God. This is a difficult truth to believe. It's a difficult thing to put your faith in God that he will take care of your needs. It's difficult to do that. It's difficult to obey God and, and live in community. Anybody living in community can say amen to that? It's difficult to let other people in our life when our culture says don't do it. Friendship's not worth it. Just have a lot of Facebook friends. Don't let people really know who you are. Don't let people really into the intimate spots of your life that they know you're jacked up. Even though you've been leading Bible studies your whole life. Perfect Bible study teacher. And nobody knows you're jacked up except your husband. And he's too afraid of you to say anything. I don't know who that was for, but that was for somebody this morning. Being open and honest and vulnerable with other people is hard. It takes having my identity changed. It takes having my heart softened by the gospel. So I'm not hardened to others where I think they're only going to like me if I'm perfect. I had a friend tell me today, it's like, Sacred City, it's just so different. Like, we're like the opposite of that. When somebody comes in all shiny, we're like, what's wrong with that person? We're just used to the mess now. We've been doing it for a, oh, just over a year. We're used to the drama. We're used to the mess. We're used to the sin that clings so near to us. We're fighting it. We're not okay with it. We're not happy with it. But we're used to rubbing each other wrong. We're used to iron sharpening iron. We're used to your attitude offends me and my attitude offends you. And we've got to work it out. We're used to that now because that's what the gospel does. It reconciles people. And you can only be reconciled to a real person. You can't be reconciled to the shiny, cleaned up, glossy mask of a person. You can't be reconciled to a phony. You can't be reconciled to a, a, an upgraded version of, you, of who you really are. God asks us to do these difficult things, live in community with people. 
be a disciple who steps out of his comfort zone and shares his faith with other people. Be a person who goes to the neighbor and offers to help and and, and lays his life down for others. Join a missional community, even though your schedule is too slammed and you've got too many kids and and there's too much craziness and you just can't, you can't do it. God says, do it. How do we respond when he says to do these things? How does, how do we, how does our heart respond? Do we respond with faith and obedience or do we respond with our list of excuses? It's difficult when God says, I want you to forgive that person. And we stand back and we say, but, but remember, remember what they did? And they never repented and they never apologized. They never even acknowledged it. It's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult to offer grace and offer forgiveness and take, like, like take the wrath of that person. It's difficult. It's impossible without a heart changed by grace. And God asks us to do difficult things. Things that are impossible without grace. Things that when you do them, you're like, okay, that was obviously grace because I never would have done that before. Right? I would have knocked that person out. Throat punch. Bang! Locked out. Whoops, I repent. Right? I like to repent like that. Oh, my bad. Jesus loves you. Peace. Those things are difficult, but God is asking all of us to obey him and trust him in the midst of difficulty. He promises that he will be with us. He promises that he will be near to us. And if we obey him, he'll be with us there in the hard decisions. I pray that we as a church would be people who are quick to obey God. Somebody say quick. Quick to respond to God in faith and repentance. That we would have a sense of urgency about the work that God has called us to do here in our city. Sense of urgency about it. We're going to see that Noah had a tough job. And only only the grace of God could enable him to fulfill it. I hope you see this today. It's my prayer that you see this today, that God's grace is a free gift. But more often than not, that free gift leads us into immensely difficult seasons. If you said, I became a Christian and I thought my life was going to get easy. I became a Christian and I thought things were going to get shiny and clean and neat. I'm sorry. <laughs> if things have gotten messy, if things have got, if your schedule has gotten thrown off, if you kind of feel like you have more questions than answers. That's what it means to walk with God. Luke tells us in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's how we're going to read this text this morning. We're going to get into it. We usually have a reader read, but I, we're covering so, too many chapters, so I just wanted to do it myself. So I want you to go to uh, Genesis chapter 7. We're going to read right through it, and I'll provide a little bit of commentary, and then we're going to get into it this morning. Chapter 7, verse 1, when you're there, say there. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, remember, God has already in chapter 6 produced this righteousness in Noah. Noah didn't just well up this righteousness on his own. God, by his grace, did it, and Noah responded, and God made him righteous. So that Noah's not doing producing this righteousness on his own. God is producing this righteousness in him. 
Verse 2, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. I want you to imagine this with me this morning. You're Noah. You've been faithful to God for the past 120 years. You've built the ark. You've preached the gospel faithfully. The animals have filled the boat. Your family has joined you on board. And now you are standing in the doorway of the ark and you're looking out over your city. Can you see it? You believe God, so you know what's coming. You know that His judgment is about to rain down on the earth, and everyone you know is about to die. Can you feel that? You look over your city and you just weep. You see your neighborhood. You see your neighbors walking their dogs and the kids playing in the front yard, completely oblivious to what's about to happen. You see people coming and going, busy with their lives, but complacent about their relationship with God. Closing business deals, making money, building stuff. God's on the back burner. You see those people who visited your church, but it was just too big of a commitment for them. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to see yourself out there doing whatever it is you do that keeps you from walking with God. Noah's standing there looking out on his city. Can you, can you picture this? Can you feel this? I bet you Noah's thinking about all the sermons he's preached over the past 120 years. He's thinking about the faces of the people that he has shared his faith with. And I believe that his heart is just breaking as he begins to feel the weight of what's about to happen. Can you picture that this morning? You're standing, the ark is filled, your family's behind you. You're on the ramp of the ark and you're looking out over your city and everybody's still busy. Life goes on, right? 
Life goes on. Hustle and bustle. Business deals to close. Stocks up, down. Presidential elections. Got to get to the kids to the daycare. Got to move. Got to shake. Got to accomplish. Got to graduate. When I get there, I'm going to finally have time for God. When I get married, then I'll focus on God. When I get the kids, then we'll start going back to church. Everybody's busy, right? And Noah's standing looking on his neighbors, looking on his city, looking on a world who is ignorant of God. And he knows what's about to happen. Oh, God, I pray we feel the weight of that this morning. Good people. Moral people. Hardworking people who just don't love God. Do you realize that's the only sin they have to be guilty of? They don't love God. Noah looks out at them knowing that his time is up. This breaks my heart. Noah said all that he can say. Noah's done all that he can do. He's preached his last sermon and he's done everything that he's known to do. 120 years. God was so gracious. 120 years he gave them to repent. I feel like Noah today. Some of you I've watched respond to God with faith and repentance and it's thrilled my soul. He's softening you. As, as you walk with him, he's continuing to soften your heart to faith and obedience. But I've also watched some of you harden your hearts against God. You presume, as Paul would say, you presume upon the kindness of God and you assume that there will always be time to repent. I'm sorry, but... That's not the case. I know this is tough to hear and it's heavy, but I'm being honest with you this morning and I just, I don't know what else to say. I don't know how, and I'm thoroughly powerless to convince you that obeying God is always better than sin. Always. Ready for the good news? Sorry, it's not coming for a long time. Verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. Now listen, here's a great apologetic. It's kind of like a thing that proves that the Bible is true. There's flood, there's flood stories throughout almost all the religions of the world. Um, It's just a, it's just because it actually happened. People have interpreted it. People try to tell the story differently. Those stories are not inerrant. The word of God is inerrant. And one of the ways we know that is um, other stories are very general. And they're like, God just got so tired of people, he just decided to wipe them off the face of the planet. And, and it doesn't say anything specific. But the Bible says specific times, dates, and places. Okay, you don't see that in, in myths. Right here it says very specifically how old Noah was. It says what the date was. It says when it happened. Okay, Uh, on that day, 
all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened. Now, this is interesting. If you remember from Genesis that, we, that when we studied through Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, the world was formless and without void, right? And water was over the face of the deep and everything. The water just symbolized chaos and everything was just chaotic. And God came down and breathed over the water and he separated the water from dry land and the, and the sky from the water. We see a complete reversal of creation here. God is reversing the order of his creation and he's allowing a reversal. He's allowing creation to, to cave in on itself as it were. He's allowing chaos to wrap the globe once again. Verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his wives, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and, their, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, eight people in all. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. As I was studying that this week, that text, that scripture, jumped off the page at me. The Lord shut him in. The time for repentance had passed. I've got to think that Noah just couldn't bring himself to shut the door. He's looking out at his city. He's seeing his neighbors. He's seeing his extended relatives. He's seeing people he shared the faith with, but they just didn't have time. Or, you know, God's just, I don't want to really be radical or an extremist. Or I don't really like that. You know, I just want to do my own thing. He's looking out at all those people and he sees the clouds roll in. He feels the thunder start to roll. He starts to see the lightning in the sky. He starts to see the rain drop. And he knows what's coming because he trusts God. He believes God that what God says he will do, he will do. And judgment is coming on the earth. And Noah's standing there and I can hear the kids in the side, right? The kids, I'm just going to expand on this a little bit. The kids are probably like, Dad, shut the door. They've had their chance, Dad. Shut the door. Dad, close the door. Forget about him. Close the door. And Noah's sitting there unable to close the door because his heart is breaking over people who are walking in their sin and they haven't repented. He's watching the rain fall and he's hoping against hope that there's still time for someone to respond in faith. But God... God himself closes the door on salvation. God himself closes the door on salvation. Noah and his family of eight are the only humans who are saved. Now I'm going to continue to paint this picture for you and it's not going to be pretty, but I want us to feel it. I want us to get it. And I don't think you're ever going to tell this story to your kids before bedtime the same again. The door of the ark closes as the rain begins to fall. I see Noah run into a window to watch as God's promise unfolds. God is faithful. 
he always does what is good, right, and perfect. Noah probably sees children playing in the rain and enjoying what many scholars believe to be the first ever rainfall on the earth. But the waters don't stop. The rain keeps falling. Eventually, people are going to start to realize what's happening. Panic begins to set in. People rushing to get their things and to get to higher ground. It was the sick and elderly who drowned first. Probably swept away by swollen creeks and rivers, unwilling, unable to get themselves to higher ground. The strong and healthy made for higher ground. Some probably, like always, you see on the news, they chose to wait it out. And they woke, woke up in the middle of the night with the waters rising in their houses. Not knowing what to do, they probably do what so many people do in flash floods and they climbed a tree or they got on top of their house to try to wait it out. Maybe they're waiting for rescue. But the rains keep falling. Eventually, you've got to believe that they're going to realize what's going on. There comes a point when they just know this is the end. I'm going to die. Noah was right. As their houses collapse amidst the ferocity of the waves, they swim for it and they try to cling to any floating scraps they can get their hands on. They kick, they scream out, they pray for the rains to stop, but it just keeps falling. God's justice and God's judgment is fatal and final. In His graciousness, He had given them 120 years to repent, and now it was too late. As I was studying this text this week, I was praying and I just started wondering, I wonder who he was. I wonder who the last man was to succumb to the rising waves. Who was the last man to give up? More than likely, he was a young, brave Olympian who hightailed it to the mountains, thinking that his youth and his strength could save him like it had so many times before. I'm young. I'm invincible. I'm strong. I'm smart. I can beat this. <coughs> but the waters eventually rose even over the peaks of the mountains. There was no way out. Noah was right. There were only two options. God's grace through faith or swim for it. And option number one had a time cap on it. It's hard for me to imagine this. It's hard for me to put myself in Noah's shoes. He's in the boat as the rain beats down on the roof and people scream and they pound on the door and they beg to be allowed inside. You were right. You were right. We were fools. Let us in. But God had shut him in. Revelation 3.8 says that Jesus opens doors that no man can shut and he closes doors that no man can open. God had closed the door on salvation and Noah couldn't open it back up. 
I know it's dark. I know it's tough. It's in this moment we need to be reminded that God said the wages of sin is death. I know this is dark. I know it's difficult to hear, but this is reality. It's truth. And thousands of people die every single day unaware of the consequences of their rebellion. If you die outside the grace of God, there's no hope. You want a life away from God? You want a life away from God? You want to do what you want to do? You want to use your money the way you want to use it? You want to use your life and spend your life the way you want to spend it? Go ahead. You're wasting it. God will say, you want to do it? You want to worship football more than me? Okay, in the end it's death. You want to worship sex more than me? Okay, you can do it. In the end it's death. You want a life lived away from God? He will give it to you in the end and death. Only those who receive the grace of God and walk with God are saved from God's judgment on sin and receive eternal life. This ain't... This ain't popular today. I get it. We've got all these modern sensibilities that reject judgment until we've been sinned against. Right? When you've been sinned against, don't talk to me about grace. Sucker needs to punish. He needs punishment. I want justice. I've been taken advantage of. You're a sinner and you want justice. God is holy and has to have justice. Let's go back to the text. Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. Wind, his breath, the same word, it's ruah, the same word in Hebrew that God said the the spirit hovered over the waters, same word. The spirit, wind blows over the earth and the waters subsided. He's recreating the earth again. He created it this way once before. He destroyed it now in judgment. He's recreating it once again. This here is pointing us to the new heavens and the new earth that God will, will, will bring back to him with Jesus. When Jesus comes back to the earth, he's gonna recreate the earth once more. In in, in Revelation, many people, the earth is renewed by fire. It's not destroyed by fire. It's a big difference. The waters here renew the earth. They don't destroy the earth completely and make the earth into something, you know, just obliterate it. The waters flood over the earth and God brings new creation out of it. The same things happen. It's going to happen in the book of Revelation when Jesus comes back. Verse 3, And the waters receded from the earth continually at the end of 150 days... The waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, many people think they found the ark. There's a lot of evidence and there's a lot of things on the Mount of Ararat. You can look into that, Google it. It's pretty cool. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. 
for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took her and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, you and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Now listen, this, I just want you to get this picture. Been floating in this floating zoo for 150 days. You've been mulling over and meditating over what just happened. All your friends, all your city, all your world that you know it has just drowned and collapsed in on itself. And after 150 days, God's promise is coming true and you see dry land. What are you going to do? I know what I'm doing. I'm crawling out the window. I'm getting out of this joint. That place, I mean, I just, I don't even like the monkey cages at the zoo. They stink. You walk into the little, the little bird area, it just stinks in there. They're living in this place 150 years. You would think as soon as they see dry ground, they're out. They're bolting. Verse 15 says, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife. God said, Go. Isn't it interesting that Noah waited to leave the ark until God said, Go? Noah, like Jesus, had learned obedience through his suffering. He learned, I'm going to wait for God. I'm not going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. We hear God recreating again, speaking the same covenant, speaking the same blessing, speaking the same mission as he did in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took a sum of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now I want you to imagine this with me again. Noah, as the head of his family, is the first to walk down the ramp from the ark. He steps out on dry land. For those of you who watch Bear Grylls, what are the first thing Noah needs to do? Right? Fire, shelter, water, food, right? It's like the, the basic, the necessities. That's what Noah's got to do. Noah, when you get out there, you've got to build civilization and you've got to go be fruitful and multiply. You've got to provide for your family again. All the things of life have to happen again, Noah. Noah's got to have a list when he steps out. 
And if Noah didn't have a list, you know his wife did. Ladies, can you imagine the amount of laundry that would pile up while living in a floating zoo for 150 days? You're like, well, I live there, but it don't float, right? It's the same thing. Listen, I bet Noah's wife and daughters-in-law had been sitting around on Pinterest the entire time, pinning ideas of what they're going to do when they get back on dry land. Right? That's my, what I'm going to do when I get back to real life board. I bet they all had their list. I'm going to run a mile just because I can. I'm going to climb a tree. I'm going to get a Big Mac. But what does Noah do? Noah steps off the ark as the head of his family men. Men, hear me. What's the first thing he does? Check the scores? See how his fantasy football team's doing? What's the first thing he does? Call into work, see if there's any messages? What's the first thing he does? Men, this is your chief calling. Men, this is your chief calling. First thing Noah does is he worships God. He gets off the boat and he worships God. That's what people do who have had their hearts melted by grace. Noah knew that he was no better than the people who died in the flood. And his heart was melted by God's amazing grace and that led him to worship. If you're an unbeliever in this room, if you're not a Christian in this room, it's easy to think God saves the good people and God kills the bad people. That's not the story of the Bible. That's the story of every other religion. The story of the Bible is we're all bad people. We all wear the black hats in the Western. Noah, when he's looking out at the ark, he doesn't see bad person. Oh yeah, I'm so much better than these people. Close it up, baby. He looks out and goes, I love that guy. That guy makes my shoes. Right? My wife buys her clothes from that girl. That, make, that guy makes the best falafel in town. I love that guy's sheep. It's phenomenal. Like, I, I want you to get this. Like, he lived in community with these people. It's his cobbler. It's, his, it's where they get their milk. It's their, their grocery store. Attend. It's, the, it's their barista. It's the people he lives life with. And he's not arrogantly looking down at them like, oh, I'm so much better than you. You deserve to swim for it. He's looking out saying, I deserve to swim for it. I'm no better than them, but God, by his grace, saved me. And that melts a man's heart. And that leads a man to worship. This is the power of the gospel. God chose you. Not because of anything you have done or ever will do. And he gives you grace. When you accept that grace by faith, it will begin to melt your hard heart of stone and that will give you joy. That will cause you to worship. You think, what is worship? Worship is having joy in something. That's what it is. 
That's why the command to love God is so impossible. He wants us to enjoy Him. If you don't enjoy God, you don't even know what it means to be near Him. Worship God. Worshiping is enjoying God. You can do that in this room as we worship and lift our hands to our Savior King. You can do that on the golf course. You can do that as you work. You can do that as you pray over your kids. You can do that in your everyday life. It's a life lived to glorify God and to enjoy Him in all of life. When you realize that, in the core of who you are, and you stop hanging on to this thread of I'm good enough for God and I have this thread of self-righteousness that I hold on to that I'm still not as bad as that person. When you can let go of that and you can see that you are ultimately no better than anyone else on the planet, but God has loved you with his one-way preferential love. It empowers you to obey God and it empowers you to worship him above all else. And I hope you can see that today. I pray that you see that Noah was a sinner just like us, but through God's grace and his faith and obedience, his family was saved from God's judgment against sin. And you're going to see in the coming weeks that Noah is still a sinner. God doesn't save him and expect him to be perfect. Noah is still a sinner. He's actually a drunken pervert whose family eventually goes bad with one of his sons getting cursed by God. So God, there's still, guys, there's still grace. God doesn't save you and then expect you to lead perfectly. You're going to sin. You're still a sinner. You still need grace daily. Bottom line, Noah wasn't even faithful enough or obedient enough to save himself. Noah's sin still piled up. Noah still needed a perfect righteousness in order to be saved. Noah needed a Savior himself. And Jesus is that Savior. Only Jesus obeyed God perfectly. The story of Noah and the ark is a story about Jesus. I showed you last week how Jesus was the true and better ark and Jesus was the true and better Noah but I want you to hear something Jesus was also outside the boat Jesus the one who walks on water drowned under the waters of God's judgment and wrath in order to save us That's what the cross is about. Jesus is outside the boat. Father, no, he says, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's beating on the boat. Jesus was cast out. Jesus had to swim for it. Jesus drowned in the wrath of God to save us. That's why we worship him. That's why today is not about six ways to relieve your stress. That's why today is not nine ways to be a perfect parent. That's why today is not about you. I'm sorry, it's not about you. You can go to churches all across this city and a hundred people will come up and shake your hand and point you to the coffee and tell you everything you want to hear about your life. That's not us. This is about Jesus. We gather because Jesus is real, because Jesus drowned for us, that Jesus saves us. This is about Jesus Christ. 
Will you worship Him? Will you take Him as your Savior King today? We can't... We asked that question in the the beginning of the sermon. Why does God do these things? Why does God allow these things? Well, it can't be that He doesn't care. It can't be that He's not good because He did it to His own Son. Does thousands of people drown? Yes, they all die. Thousands of people die every single day. So did His Son. pray that we could feel this. I pray that we could experience true grace in the midst of God's divine judgment and wrath because we'll never get grace if we don't get it. This is what we deserve. We deserve to swim for it. And every person who says, God, I don't want your righteousness. I don't want your son. I don't want to live for you. I don't want to know you. I don't want to be near you. I want to be a fool. I want to go to the club and I want to hit it and quit it. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I want to do with my money what I want to do. On judgment day, you're going to be swimming for it. And just like the waters of God's wrath and the flood, you won't make it. But for those who by God's grace put their faith in Jesus, We stand before the judgment of God and all of that wrath and all of that judgment was placed on Jesus. And I I just get to go, I'm with him. Jesus Christ saves sinners of which I'm the worst. Father, I thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Even hard words, even difficult words like this. And I pray that it would move in our heart. That it would soften this hard heart of stone. And that we would desire to walk near you. Because you've accepted us. You've adopted us. You've given us the righteousness of Christ. Listen, Sacred City Church, I'm not done, so I got a little bit more, but just, I fooled you there. Listen, this is my closing though. Sacred City Church is a crazy church. In the world standard, in whatever your past experience with churches, it's a crazy church. I'm just going to say it. Not that we jump around and play with snakes and whatever, but we live our life in crazy ways that our culture doesn't get. Like Noah, people think we're crazy because of the way we live in community and and the way we're on mission. How can you be so open with people about your sins and struggles? How do you just share your junk with a room full of people in missional community? I could never do that. The gospel's changed my heart. I I love these people, but I love them enough not to care what they think about me. God has melted my heart. I realize I'm no better than anybody else. I can share my weakness with people and they can respond in sin and I can still give them grace because God has given me so much grace. That's how. It's not about me. 
God's grace has freed me to be radically open and honest with people. That's what the gospel does. It saves me and it places me in a gospel-centered family. Noah's life looked crazy too. The only explanation of Noah's life for 120 years was Noah's walking with God. He's building a boat. I don't really get it. He's preaching the gospel. Nobody cares. The only explanation of Noah's life was he's walking with God. Listen to me today. This is what I pray. When the gospel changes your heart, the only I I want your neighbors to look in. I want your coworkers to work in. I want your family to look in. And the only excuse for your life, that your life absolutely demands a gospel explanation. The only reason they share that much is the gospel. The only reason they give that much is the gospel. The only reason they live that close with people is the gospel. The only way they can forgive people like that is the gospel. The only way they can walk hand in hand with broken sinners, yet not condone their behavior, but point them to Jesus is the gospel. The only way they're not a liberal, they're not a conservative, they're not a Democrat, they're not a Republican, they're somewhere in the middle, they're Jesus people. The only way you can explain that is the gospel. Radically humble, yet radically bold. Only the gospel can do that. Studying this text, my heart was broken this week for the people in this city. Specifically for the people in this city who don't know God. Or who know this version of God that says, clean yourself up, come to church, and then God will like you. Or the, 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 the version of um, come to Jesus and everything is going to be okay and everything works out and, and he's going to give you your best life now. My heart breaks for those people. John Piper says that mission, mission exists because worship doesn't. It's our desire to see the people of our city worship the gracious God before the door to their salvation is closed. I want this to give us a boldness. I want this to give us a sense of urgency. The door to salvation was closed. That's why we do crazy things in this church, like adopt families from Nepal, like remodel a widow's house, like adopt internationally, like throwing parties for our neighbors to meet our MC family, like having missional music nights where half the church is down, having drinks, enjoying music, our band's playing, and we're inviting our neighbors and our unbelieving friends in to, to, to rub elbows with our community, to hope to develop some relationships so we can point them back to Jesus Christ. That's why we do things like this, because someday the door to salvation will be closed for every single person. The time will be up. God will call your name and he will call your number and you will go to heaven and you'll stand before the judgment seat and there's no, oh, second chance. We do all these things because we want people to know and worship our great and gracious God before time runs out. And if you're in this room today and you haven't embraced God by faith, 
I'm not saying embrace God by becoming a good person and trying to measure up to some state. You haven't embraced God by faith. You haven't said, I am broke. I am a sinner. I cannot get to you on my own. I cannot swim for it. I can't save myself. I need your grace. If you haven't done that this morning, I encourage you to do that now. And for those of us who have, I would encourage you to repent of your half-heartedness like me. Repent of your half-heartedness. Turn from your lukewarm heart and ask God to set you aflame for him and his mission. Ask God to make this real to your heart. Ask God that you could wake up with a sense of purpose and you could feel like Noah looking out on his city, knowing if they don't believe, they drowned. I ask that God would give your heart a fire and a flame for him. Father, our gracious God, would you do that today? Would you save? Would you set us aflame? Will you burn a fire so bright our city has to take notice? Will you do something in our lives that demands a gospel explanation? Will you do that for us, Father? Jesus, I thank you for taking our place outside the boat. Thank you for drowning under the, re- the waves of God's wrath in order to save us and make us into children of God. I pray that we would remember you. We would thank you. We would worship you as we partake of your body and your blood this morning. Father, Make it real to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.